0: Welcome to the Samuel Andreev Podcast. My guest today is the Scottish composer, Martin Suckling. Martin, it is a tremendous pleasure to have a chance to speak with you today. I've known of your work for a number of years now, and I'm an admirer. I really uh, I really enjoy your music. And it's been a great pleasure getting to know it even better over the past few days, uh, particularly listening to your new CD, which we'll talk about. Um, but here's my opening salvo. So Right at the moment, NASA is preparing to launch its Artemis project, which will take us back to the moon for the first time in 50 years. And there are private organizations that are endeavoring to send us to Mars, uh, quite potentially within our lifetime. In addition to that, for those who are following the various explorers that are on the surface of Mars right now, we are able to get daily photographs beamed back to earth from the surface of a planet that is over 100 million kilometers away what's your response to that as a creative person
1: wow that is amongst the questions that i might have predicted you'd start with that is that's not one of them um it's um and and my my sort of um struggling almost to find uh, an answer immediately to that is is sort of part of of the answer because like how how do we respond um to things of that that kind of magnitude? Um, I remember when the um when the rover now, I can't remember whether it was the moon or Mars, but when I was a student, the the rovers um, that landed there, and we were getting um updates from them, and it was terribly exciting and sort of um, thinking about how how these kind of things can feed into your your life as a creative person i guess part of it is is sort of a, an invitation always to keep your ears and your imagination open because there is so much out there to be discovered um and and that as a as a sort of general rule is is something that i i teach my students about and and care deeply about but um but also astronomy as a as a discipline, you know, has long been, been a source of fascination for for composers, and um, and relates uh, in a certain way to to a few of my my recent pieces, um, and the the background structure of of Blackfell, the um, computer game song cycle opera hybrid that um, that I've I've recently released is is a a kind of version of the Harmony of the Spheres and um, also a piano etude that um, I wrote recently for Tamara Stefanovic uses a similar idea and these sort of um, concepts of, uh, of, of orbital periods and and how they might relate to how they might relate to music and this the the ideas of these things being being all joined together now you know I don't I don't believe in in the harmony of the spheres, as a as a as a sort of actual thing, but as a as a concept that can help for structuring and um, developing and discovering new material, um, these things these things can be very useful. So, so all sorts of new discoveries, um, whether they're on this planet or others, can be the germ that um, that that triggers a a chain reaction of a compositional process, which um, can be very fruitful.
0: If it does turn out that there is music happening in other civilizations, extra galactic civilizations, for example, would you imagine that this music would have any points in common with our own? For example, uh, if we think about mathematics, we, we think of mathematics as being not so much something that was invented by humans, but something that was discovered. And there are many who believe that mathematics would be, uh, would exist in, in much the same form in another hypothetical civilization. What about music? What would you say if, if it turns out that there's music in some other civilization? Would we expect it to be completely unrecognizable, do you think? Or would there be something we
1: might be able to appreciate? Well, that's kind of one of the, um, the the heart says yes, but the head says no questions in a way, which is as a Scot is something that I encounter in various sorts of situations. But um, <laughs> we can I mean, you know, that that's a sort of um, an extension of the of the whole music as a universal language question in a way which is which is both an extremely appealing on earth and also extremely problematic but um of course there are certain fundamental aspects of how sound works and how sound um affects us as um uh, as 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 creatures of of this planet how our ears work um, builds into the sorts of uh, musical materials that um we may find in various cultures so, so i think it would be Reasonable to assume that if there were something um, that that was of some kind of equivalence to music on some extraplanetary civilization, that it too would depend on the particular physical forces that have um, that, that 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 have constrained the the development of of the creatures um, on there. So perhaps. You know, if, if they are um, of a nature that we would be able to communicate with in some form, then if that were the case, it would be perhaps reasonable to think that, that, that there may be uh, a music which would be potentially shareable. But, um, but the chances of, a, of an extraterrestrial civilization having sufficient physical properties in common with us um, in order for those sorts of audible musical structures as we know them to be shared seems to me to be vanishingly slight whereas the um, the laws of maths apply regardless of the physical structures to which we've become uh, that, which have formed us, but then, on the other hand, you could say that um it's those very same laws of laws of maths that that have constrained the forces that that have created um what we are and through through evolution, so if they are similarly applying elsewhere, who knows um it would be nice certainly wouldn't it be wonderful to think that there was that there to discover um and to share? um that would be that would be extraordinary
0: yeah the idea fills me with awe i mean to to return to your point it's hard enough for french audiences to understand british music <laughs> so what are the odds that <laughs> what are the odds that an, an extra galactic civilization would would be able to yeah i mean what if what if this hypothetical civilization had no what if they had no atmosphere on their planet that's an interesting one what would that what would that look like
1: well well indeed then I guess there, there would but, but perhaps they would have some kind of sort of um play of vibrations that worked in a uh, um through through solid objects and and that um you could you could uh, have a type of music that would work that way and perhaps everything would be physically connected and you would you you would feel um these kind of plays of, of patterns and structures, perhaps through whatever part of your body was, um, was touching the surface of the planet. And, and there would be ways of transmitting intentional vibrations from being to being um, in that kind of circumstance. Who can know? But of course, I mean, when you say, you know, French audiences understanding British music, Slightly ingest, slightly not, but th- this whole question of what it means to understand a piece of music, um, and the different possibilities of understanding, and the things that that interfere with that. Of course, there are things that we uh, we think about a lot as composers, um, and perhaps different composers think about it to to a different extent. But it's certainly something that um, that I feel certainly as a. a as a performer as well, I still like to think of myself as a, as a violinist. Um, uh, a big part of what I feel I am doing or I want to do is to communicate, is to share something. Um, and what it means for for that sharing to have been fruitful um, is a complex question and may or may not involve understanding. and And there may be many possible types of of understanding and ways of understanding and types of fruitfulness um and i think one of the challenges for us as composers is is to know how the 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 ways in which we can concede that kind of understanding and can can prod people into a, a fruitful way of of listening because listening's a very it's, a, it's an active thing and um and one can, if one wishes to be perverse, can deliberately listen, as it were, badly or listen against a piece of music. Um, I, I, from when students come um, to, there's sort of students coming to see whether they want to come and study at the university I teach at, so. um, I do a little experiment where I, um, I pay, play Baba Black Sheep in, in a horrifically unmusical way. Um, on the violin, putting accents and position changes, and all sorts of expressive gestures in completely the wrong place um, to to help them understand that they 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 hear this as a misunderstanding of the piece. They can hear that it's wrong, and that that is it is in your power as a as a performer as an instrumentalist to give a bad reading to to play the music literally wrong. So there is something in there in that. That structure, which which we could sort of agree upon as being essentially what what it means, in in a way, and um, and so finding ways in composition to to gently nudge people towards a type of listening that will that will create a fruitful engagement and a worthwhile engagement. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, a nice way of them spending their time. I th- and that's, that's the sort of thing in terms of this area of musical understanding that that's the sort of thing that's, that, that's, that, um, I'm interested in when I'm writing.
0: I think that's absolutely right. There's a kind of unspoken contract between the artist and the, and the, the audience in a sense, which is that the audience is voluntarily giving up their time and you're giving something that is is better than what they might have done otherwise with their time. Yeah, and I absolutely agree.
1: I like that, uh, that that term better than what they might have done otherwise. That's...
0: Right, right, right. So so there's an unspoken assumption on the part of the audience that they're getting something of value in exchange for their time. Uh, and I think that's that's a reasonable expectation. But the the example that you just gave, which I think is very interesting of taking Baba Black Sheep and playing it badly. See, everybody knows that piece and we all know it from childhood. So if it's played badly, that's obvious. And it's the case with popular musical traditions as well, that I think even the most profoundly unmusical person will recognize if yesterday is being completely butchered by a street performer. We don't have that luxury as composers, though, do we? Because one of the things that I think is often very challenging for audiences, and this is not merely my assumption, but it's something that many people have told me on on many independent occasions, is that it's nerve-wracking for them to enter a situation where they won't be able to assess what they're hearing. And they're afraid of appearing foolish for not understanding it. I think part of Part of that anxiety has to do with having no idea if what they're hearing is good or not. And they won't be able to tell if it's not good or if they don't like it, if that's due to the piece or the performance or some mixture of both. So as a composer, I mean, we all have to deal with this problem to varying degrees because we're beholden to the goodwill of performers, of course, and we have to hope that the performances are a reasonable indication of our intentions. But what? how do you respond to that?
1: Oh, a number of uh, a number of things come up from that. One is that um, yeah, we've heard we've heard terrible performances of really good pieces, and not being able to be sure, well, or not being able to be sure was that the performance or was that the piece? But you know, equally, I've heard unbelievably good performances of pieces that that I sort of feel as as a composer, as I was listening to it, I could objectively say this is not good music. But my God, it's being played well, and actually, I'm having a fantastic time. So, actually, maybe the piece wasn't so bad because it was creating the situation in which the performers could do something, which I, which I adored. But it was also it was also very humbling because it made me realise that um, you know I think as a composer I am curating this this time that you're spending here better than you might have done otherwise. But actually, the the part that the performer plays in that um it may be much much greater than, than than we as composers are are always necessarily willing to to admit um certainly in terms of the direct experience of, of the listener but in terms of this yes um this knowing whether knowing knowing how to listen to it knowing whether the the piece is good or not knowing if it was performed well or not certainly one of the things that um I've I, I've tried to do for for a long time is to is to write music in which you could hear if there's a wrong note. Um so I care very much about pitch and I care about the sorts of journeys that pitch can take you on and the sorts of relationships between pitch. Um and and I like to build environments in my music where if um where there is the possibility of, of, of a wrong pitch. Um and and that it would be not just wrong theoretically, but wrong audibly. Um and and so I think that that um while I understand the sorts of concerns that um and the nervousness that that, that you mention of of audience members, um, I think that there is a lot that we can do in our music to through the music itself, to help a listener and to, um, to 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 point to, to like I say, ways of fruitful listening. What what you might want to grab people's attention and what can fade into the background. And I feel like you know what we do as composers with timbre is a is a, is a big aspect of that. It's it's part of the it's part of the performance of, of perhaps the underlying musical idea and that the timbre can draw attention to or hide away and can blend things together or, or pull them apart. Um, but it's the, the, the whole network of what's going on. But if you as a composer haven't given the, um, I mean, sometimes you can over determine the materials and that, that sort of constrains a performer too much. So part of what the audience is experiencing is a, perform- a performer's discomfort um, rather than a performer's joy. And if you have everything in phase such that these sort of solely musical structures are really, really working and they've been given to a performer of the highest caliber and they they provide those nudges that that performer needs to be able to do that thing that performers can do, that that allow allow them that freedom and that agency to be expressive. Then all those things together can create really really special musical experiences. But to get to get that sort of to get that resonance, that can be that can be challenging. Um, but it's fun.
0: One of the things that I think is extraordinary about the music of the high classical style is that well, there's a couple of things. One of them is that there's a first of all, composers had genres at the time that were meaningful, right? So you could you could write a piece within a particular genre and you could push against those conventions or you could go with them, but there was a background of expectations associated with that genre. <clears throat> and then in addition to that, the harmonic language of the time made it so that you could have pitches that were understood to be, let's say, structural pitches or that that directly related to the harmony. And then you could also have pitches that were foreign to that, non-harmonic tones, apogiaturas, and so on. And there's, in, in both instances, there's a kind of background layer of expectation of what would normally happen. And then you can push that to some degree. And I think what you're describing is an attempt to get back to that, not necessarily using a classical language, but the power of context, the power of having some form of expectation against which the audience member can can push and it, that allows them a bit of room to 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 dream also i think um yeah i absolutely you th- agree you with that. yeah
1: yeah yeah i think um i mean in fact i think genre still applies today and uh, i think actually um that a genre as we sort of think of it um uh, often, musical terms is is um, is sort of far too too rigidly um, box-like, and that actually genre applies in all sorts of like this the, sort of the principle of genre, the categorizational principle that we use in order to understand the world, um, because the world is far too complex perceptually for us to take everything in. So we simplify things, so we categorize things, and when something Changes as a category that we've previously applied it to, or pushes against that category, that creates a, a really like oh, creates a nice sort of cognitive feeling. Um, I think, uh, and and that to a certain extent, that's expression. So, you take a note and you hear it in one context. You hear it in a, the context of a G major chord, um, say the G in a G major chord, and then the chord shifts to an E flat major chord. That change of context has has an almost sort of physical for me anyway, a kind of physical response, that sort of reframing of what you've heard there. Um, And I think genre-type ideas can apply across all sorts of different levels of music. You know, are we hearing something as a chord or is it part of a more um, linear structure? We can play with those boundaries. Um, is um, Is it a... Is it a chord where each note is important or is it um, more of a sort of harmonic field or a texture? You can move to that. Um, so so in, the, in the very sort of small categories of musical material, I think these sort of genre ideas of what to expect and, and, and how things might work in that sort of situation apply. And, and it goes all the way up to the concert situation. If that's what we have and what we expect from a concert situation, and I think, I think these expectations, I think, sometimes are characterised as a horizon of expectations, are some of the the sort of core expressive tools that we have as composers because we are, we're we're curating somebody's experience through time, and constantly setting up expectations, and hopefully. Playing with them in an engaging way and and potentially very expressive way. And if you if you just if you just crassly break them, um, then that can have a sort of a sort of an immediate effect. But it, it it's um, it's it's sort of almost dead. It, 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 you know you 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 have that little explosion and there's nothing from that. But if you if you're sort of pushing things, then you create interesting tensions. And I think um, you're absolutely right to say it is. Is these plays of e- expectation, and um, I think one of the challenges as composers is is, is what sorts of um, what sorts of things can we expect from an audience to bring to, uh, to to bring to a piece? You know, if you if you build a piece purely out of um, quotation, say, then it's uh, it's its effect very much will depend on on having a shared hinterland where where we all might know what those quotations are and and for somebody who doesn't it would it would fall flat. So so we're all always writing within and, and, and for a culture and sensitivity to that um, I think has a big impact on on the sorts of things that that are available to you as a composer. But within the piece, I think within the piece we're setting up these little Little rules, little contracts, little expectations that, that we're constantly pushing against to create these these expressive frisions, um which again is fun.
0: I was talking about this with a student this morning actually who recently discovered the music of Helmut Lachenmann and he was very enthusiastic about it and the student is uh, living in the United States and he approached it from the perspective of a sort of beguiling sound world. But the wider context of Lachenmann, the, the well, the German-ness of that music and also the, the obsession that he has with the German musical tradition and heritage and also the sort of classical music world, the backdrop of that world against which he's, he's imagining his work, I think was opaque to that student simply by virtue of not being German, not being in that context and not, not knowing that world. So such students, I think, will tend to sort of skim off the surface, uh, but not necessarily understand the motivations behind the music. And this is, to be clear, not a criticism at all of that student, who's a very, very brilliant and very interesting uh, musician, I think. But, uh, but that's something that I've often found. And that seems to well, that seems to contradict the idea that music is a universal language, which first of all, you would you would have to make the claim that music is a language, which I think is a difficult claim to make. And then secondly, to, to suggest that it could be universal. In other words, it could be appreciated for its own qualities by whomever in whatever context and situation and whatever historical epoch. And I think that's a dubious proposition. So where I'm going with all of this is when you talk about connecting with an audience is it a completely hypothetical audience that could be anywhere in the world or are we always writing for on some level the people that are in our immediate surroundings the people who speak our language who live in our cities what do you think
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, you know, what you said definitely is not a criticism of that student, but I'd say it's a compliment to Lachenmann because what he achieves and, and what I aim for when I can is a music of sufficient richness that there are many ways of engaging with it in this sort of fruitful listening. And, and if for one person is the purely sonic aspect and there's enough in my music to offer that kind of enjoyment, then great and if it's somebody else who feels that it says something about the history of music or music in society or something like that it seems slightly unlikely to me but um but if it were you know then then also great i don't think what i'm trying to get at is 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 there's no there are lots of wrong ways probably but there's no one right way and i think the the best music and the music yeah, the best music. And the music the music that, that we continue to find relevant to us and has been relevant across a long period of time is music that has that that richness that it doesn't require um a very particular or very restricted or only within a particular culture to understand it. Um that said, No, of course I couldn't be imagining that um Anybody from across the world, from any sort of background, could um, uh, that, thats 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 not I, I, the person I have in my imagination. Is probably me in a concert hall, being short of attention span, um, and uh, being enjoying novelty up to a point and wanting to be engaged. I, It's—I think it is difficult for me to, in a way, to write for anybody else but myself. But I tend not to be writing for myself as a as a composer. I tend to be writing for myself as a, you know, as a person, as a person who loves music and cares about music, um, and and I know that there are other people in that respect like me, um, and more people than there are other composers. And um, the the sort of music that works in those kind of contexts, there is there is a place for it in our society, and there um and and therefore i'm happy to to write for for that sort of um imaginary but person who is also probably to a certain respect me but sometimes you know um if i'm writing for some children's music then i'm writing for my kids literally and and i think probably a lot of composers share this you know when you're the you tend never to be, I think, just writing for a single person, but you may be writing for a single person as a representative of of a group. And the, having that 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 sort of real person to focus on can be very rewarding and can be a really great way of of, of making a piece really go. You know, if you're writing for a particular performer, that performer's sound the way you know they engage with music, maybe the way they learn it, the way they perform it, will find its way into the music. And you may be literally writing for them, but that doesn't mean that that piece of music can only be for them. That's just, there's a, there's a sort of special relationship there. So again, if I'm writing some violin duos for, 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 for learner violinists, then I'm going to be writing for my daughter, and I'm going to be doing things that I know that she enjoys doing. But she enjoys them because she's uh she's a violinist of a certain age and certain ability, and there are fun things that you can do. So so it's um it's it's the general and the particular together.
0: That sounds right to me. What you were saying about the need for there to be sufficient richness and depth in the music in order to be able to reach people that may be completely outside of your context. That sounds right. It makes me think also of children's literature, since you were mentioning children a minute ago, there are so many stories for kids, uh, who have their origin in a, in a parent who happens to be a writer or an artist an illustrator telling their kids a story and then the the child enjoys it. And so they decide to turn it into a book and it becomes a great classic. And it, you know, appeals to millions of kids around the world. There's something about that. Um, you, you make something for one person or for yourself or for a very small number of people. And if it has that sufficient richness and depth, then then it can transcend its initial circumstances. And it's it's not because one is necessarily aiming to communicate with a huge number of people from the outset that that succeeds, that you're any likelier to produce something that's going to actually do that. So...
1: Yeah, I mean it's the. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase talking about children's literature. It's a lovely book by Oliver Jeffers called Here We Are, um, and there's the the it's it's a sort of uh, it's, it's it's astronomy again. It's, it's it's this image of what where planet Earth is, and um, and and it sort of goes from a big sort of zoomed out right down to the um, right down to down to the level of the of um, you know your feet in front of you but um, uh, it says we're all people and one people is a person and it's is that aspect that you you know if you're when you're truly writing for somebody um it's because you're writing for another human and it's it's that it's that shared aspect um I think which which can can then sort of spill out um to all the other people that that, that might enjoy I don't think I've made myself at all clear there, but it made sense in my head.
0: (laughs) I think I've got it. Um, What's interesting to me is when you talk about audience, it seems like you spontaneously or instinctively are describing a concert audience. Wouldn't you say, I would bet you a fancy lunch that the majority of your listeners are going to hear your music electronically rather than in the concert hall. So you've got this beautiful new CD that's come out recently that I've been enjoying very much, uh, called The Tuning. And I would be willing to bet that that the audience for that CD, for those recordings, will vastly outnumber the number of people that are able to hear that piece in a concert hall. And I think that's a reality for a lot of composers. So that being said, if one accepts my proposition... Do you, if you're writing, do you do you imagine a concert situation primarily still, or are you also thinking about, you know, what's this going to sound like when it's recorded?
1: That's a very interesting question. So I, I absolutely agree with, with your premise there. Um, and I would say certainly for all of the pieces on that CD, I was imagining a concert situation because, of course, they were written for concerts. And I've been fortunate enough that that um, everything that I've been written has has been done with a known performance in mind. And and when it's not, it's sort of been for, for me to play, or me to play with my daughter, or or whatever. So so the liveness um of the situation in which it's originally going to be performed is yeah, is is what I'm thinking of when I write it. But you're absolutely right to say that um the the vast majority of encounters uh with this music is going to be um likely in a situation like we are now with with headphones on perhaps um you know perhaps on 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 your own and in fact that's how i as it were consume most of my music um these days is is with headphones on on my own and it's it's not that part of the social experience and um yeah i i have to say that i i didn't write any of that stuff with that in mind, and I think, um, that well, you know, I, th- I think venue is incredibly important, um, and context, as we've been talking, has a big impact on how you listen, and, um, and actually, you know, that th- why not write music that is specifically for, um, for recorded, uh, for recording, and for and uh, for listening in that sort of way, and I guess then we we get to the sort of album concept, which um, uh, you know, popular music is is way ahead of us uh, in that kind of regard. Um, and I think yeah, we're we're always sort of um, chasing after this sort of uh, elusive live experience when um, and it's it's sort of it's kind of a ghost hiding hiding behind, um, all these recordings that we have. Oh, but I like the ghost and I do, I do like to be in a room with people and to to play to people. And I think maybe in a way that we're recording is a, is this, uh, it's kind of, it's also a message of hope is to say, you know, we, you can play this, you can play this again. And, um, particularly with chamber music, you know, then, then things do get played. More than once, and and so, ah, the world is big enough for all sorts of approaches. I I think, and um, as it happens, in, in in these CDs of mine that have been recorded, they were all intended for for live performance. Um, though you know, actually, one of the pieces in the orchestral pieces is yet to have its premiere. So so you know, there's there's a real tangible for me anyway example of, of what you've just said, um, but. Um, But I think there is but they are different experiences and there is something very special about being in a room with other people and performers and experiencing music as a communal event. And and there is a different and equally special experience of of being on your own and listening. And um, again, if the music is rich enough, then it can sustain these various different contexts
0: I think that's right the, a few different figures come to mind actually in this recording versus concerts idea there were there are clearly composers who thought of their music primarily in terms of the concert hall and i think there are those who primarily imagine it in terms of recordings so for example john cage is known to have disliked recordings and to he didn't exactly discourage them but because he also had a hand in in producing some of them. But for the most part, he felt that the music had to be experienced uh, live in a room with other people. And I think the content of the music, its nature also really encourages that. I have to admit that I've often enjoyed Cage's music in concert situations, but I often find myself getting terribly bored if I have to listen to it on a CD. Conversely, Stravinsky, the late works of Stravinsky, I think if they're not written for the microphone, they sure sound like it. They sound marvelous on recordings. And I have to imagine that his experience making recordings of all of his works with Robert Kraft at Columbia studios had to have had an influence in that sense. There's an immediacy to the sound. It has an almost pop music or a jazz-like quality where it really benefits from being close-miked. It's very articulate. It's very crisp. It's very clear and transparent and, and punchy and it sounds amazing on recordings. So I think that uh, a composer's relationship to recording actually can play a significant role in the sort of music they end up writing.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And um, I think that, that brings up timbre again because um, you know, recording offers particular, as you, you said, it's, it sounds like it, it wants to be close-minded and um and is punchy and and of course then we can we can do that sort of thing with a live experience as well and if you're working with um uh amplified sound for example um but in a live experience then then you've got you you potentially have somewhere in between the two um and you can be uh inspired by and want to use those kinds of timbres and that kind of perhaps cleanness um, that you might associate with recordings, but but within a live context as well.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your interactive opera project, which, uh, which I've just had a chance to see. This is a really interesting concept. You, you mentioned in the program notes for this that it came out of your, well, it came partly out of your experiences in the pandemic and this realization that that a lot of musical experiences were now happening online and so i take this to be a response to that that experience of of all of those online concerts but really reimagining the possibilities of that so tell us a little bit about this project what it is and um, well and also where we can find it
1: sure well um, black fell is uh, calling it a, a game for music or an interactive digital opera. Um it's a sort of fancier term that was being used while we were developing the project and is uh, is what it says it's a, it's a, a game which lives online on a website which is black fellcom and uh, you play the game and the game is the piece of music as you it's a sort of first-person perspective game. You wander around an imaginary landscape, and your position in that landscape uh, dictates the music that you'll hear um, and the direction that the story will go. I'm terribly bad at explaining it verbally for some reason, which um, I really ought to be better at, but it's um, what it came out of was, um, as you said, Samuel, the, This experience during the pandemic of lots and lots of music happening online and a lot of these situations tended to be um, filmed versions of uh, of a traditional concert experience and while I was very grateful for those things being there and I fulfilled a need it also sort of um, to my mind magnified what was missing um, with that experience of being with other people in a concert hall and and it struck me that um, the 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 possibilities of performing and listening to music online um, were were rather different or, or I want to say greater but it, that, that's not really fair they, 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 but offers other opportunities than just presenting a, a filmed concert um because you're going to be engaging with it through a computer and because you're likely to be on your own um there are there there are possibilities so you can um they can be interactive in a way that uh, a traditional concert experience couldn't be so uh when during the pandemic the um Jonathan Morton of the Scottish ensemble uh asked if I would be uh, if, if I would write a piece for him as a solo violinist to be then uh, performed and filmed with a dancer from the um, Scottish Dance Theatre dancing to it, I said, well, yes, but as long as it's not just a filmed dance of this piece that I've written, there has to be something which makes sense of it being existing online. So we, we talked... Um, the whole creative team. We talked a lot about it, and and thought of ways that we could we could make it as it were worthwhile or make sense of of this different venue because it's not a concert hall venue. It's it's your computer, um, and we decided that a way that we could do this was by 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 creating three different cuts of a, of a film of the dancer. And creating three strands of musical material, any of which could be combined together. So in all, there are um, seven different possible combinations of the musical material and three different films. And so 21 in all. And then what you do when you, you go to to this little piece called These Bones, This Flesh, This Skin, um, is you, you choose which components you have. And then you enjoy that particular combination of of dancing film and music and and I found this very appealing because um, it created a situation where the piece as it were didn't exist in any single iteration it was the the sort of combination of all the different possible ones so I liked that very much but I felt that it was too it was still sort of too rigid because you make your choices at the start and then and then that's it and i really wanted to do something where actually you could as a as a listener be sort of responding continuously and changing the musical experience as you do that and of course video game engines are set up exactly for this sort of thing um where they will it's very easy to trigger audio depending on where you are within the um within the video game so so all the sort of requirements for that sort of thing are, are, are already there. So um, a year or so ago, um, I got together some of the same creative team, some others, to see if we could develop a, a project where um, we could use this, this aspect of, of video gaming of, um, to, to create something, again, that would live online, but um, would really take advantage of this as a venue and allow you that kind of a type of agency. As a listener, to to direct where the story is going, so it's it's like a bit of interactive fiction. It's to a certain extent like choose your own adventure books, which I read a lot of when I was uh, a child and and enjoyed. Um, but it's also it's also a song cycle. It's also a piece of contemporary music. And um, yeah, as you move through the landscape, it will. It, it's, a, the, it's a generative, um, the, the, the sort of background music, ah, it's not really background, but the, um, there are various different strands and there's a vocal strand um, and the, you can follow the singer around as you hear her and um, the different parts of the landscape that you're in will generate different sorts of music. Originally, wanted this to be completely sightless so that um, you would just be following your ears. Um, but uh, we found that um, this was quite disconcerting, uh, early players of this found that, that it was a very strange experience and um, some visual feedback was, was needed so so we created this sort of spectral forest and some standing stones that sort of help, um, can help you tie certain musical events to, to certain visual ones and, and give you a little bit more control. And um, I mean, I should say, also a wonderful poet friend um, of of mine called Francis Leviston developed a, a text that would that would work um, with these concepts and and creates this sort of this this wonderful I think um, kind of journey into into the background into into the the formation of of a character who is a who is a young astronomer who um, returns to returns to Kielder, which is a, a forest where there's a, a, a public observatory in, in the north of England, and returns there in a cloudy no- night, so can't do any observation, and sort of reflects on the things that brought her there. Um, and it's a very subtle text, and, um, uh, yeah, I'm very privileged to, to get to work with such a poet.
0: The idea of modularity of an, of an artwork, of there being multiple pathways through it and not necessarily having a, a straightforward arrow of time that directs everything, but rhizomatic outbranchings is in a sense, a staple of modernism. You see it in, in modernist poetry and, and you certainly see it in the post-war avant-garde in music. But it seems to me that at the time, and particularly in music, it it didn't quite find its ideal expression. So for example, if you take pieces like the Boulez Third Piano Sonata or the Klavierstück Elf of Stockhausen. These are pieces that attempt to do away with the rhetoric, I suppose, associated with a highly teleological approach to music, where we're always inclining towards some kind of ultimate resolution or endpoint. And in such pieces, there's no up or down. There's a kind of constellation that you can move through. But it always struck me that The audience, in a sense, is really left out of that because unless they can read the score and unless they have an idea of how the piece is put together, what they inevitably hear is a polished, finished performance in which the performer, out of necessity, has had to take these little fragments of music, put them into some kind of order, and then present that as a finished concert experience. So ultimately, the the modularity of those pieces, which are made up of little fragments that can be played in any different order, is a matter between the performer and the composer ultimately, but not really one for the audience. And so it seems to me that what you've done with this is to make that something that the audience can actually interact with in a way that's really meaningful. And that's tremendously exciting. And also this idea of, well, borrowing strategies from the world of of video games, which are incredibly powerful artworks now. I'm in touch with a bunch of people from the world of video games and people who are writing music for video games. And seems to me to be low-hanging fruit really for creative types to to look at what's being done in that world and to imagine what it could look like in 10 years also you know what what sort of music could there be for video games uh given their current state of unbelievable sophistication
1: i completely agree i i think there's vast untapped potential in in that whole area and um yeah, I mean obviously, um, I think some of the ideas behind this piece come out of um, you know, those core sort of open form works of, of, of the 20th century and 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 relating to that experience that you've described of. I and mean, of course, if you have a recording of one of these pieces, there it is. It's it it's stuck. Um and the ability for for this thing to be con- continuously changing because of, because of the generative nature of of some of the musical materials, even if you follow exactly the same footsteps, you will never have uh, exactly the same sonic experience. And um, yeah, allowing a listener into that world. In a sense, the listener is the performer, um, as you as you play this one. So maybe it hasn't moved that far away, but you don't, you don't need to make those sorts of decisions that you would have had to do um, in advance. You can, you can make them on the fly. But the other thing is as well is to, uh, is that um, a teleology actually is is still important to me. And I think it's it's a very important aspect of, of interactive fiction is to have a convincing, um, as it were, story arch or, or however you want to to characterize it, so there's the 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 there's an aspect of that there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of um, moving parts involved, but at the same time, I was very concerned that as far as I could, any possible journey that you took within this environment would provide one of those rich, convincing musical experiences that we've been talking about. So there is. Um, a, a lot of sort of compositional background in there that um, choices are constrained, and there are certain things where where certain things will have to happen, or a particular pitch will necessarily sound at a particular point. And one of the things that I like about how Francis approached Francis the poet approached the this this piece was that. Um, Unlike some narrative uh, and, and like some interactive fiction, where the branching will lead off to a variety of different conclusions, this one it all comes back to the same concluding point, um, which is helpful for me compositionally because because that's the sort of helpful from a, a design perspective, but also from this sort of idea of um, circling around and and memory and replaying things to to gain a sort of richer understanding of them and yeah the, the the sort of musical use of the video game that I've that I've done in, in certain respects is, is pretty primitive um it was uh, but it was also I think what what worked for the concept that we had it didn't need to be more sophisticated um, than there's a sort of bedrock of of a just justly intuned um justly intoned spectrum which holds everything together and um creates a um a certain unifying force to it all um which is sort of a solution to to that particular problem but there as you said there's the, the, so many possibilities within video game environments and and I think again it's a, it's a is a different sort of venue, and venues and types of art form sort of grow together. The venue creates the art form to a certain extent because of the the social situation that you're in, but also the acoustic situation that you're in. And um, there's there there are fixed aspects to a video game venue to a certain extent. The likelihood that it's going to be a solitary experience, but that certainly not the necessity of that. Um, but um, but there are also aspects of it which are infinitely flexible um, because it, it's not um, held to any particular acoustic rules. Um, so, so that, again, is one of the, the challenges to deal with is, well, what do you do with this huge variety of possibilities and how do you narrow down to an area that, that's actually manageable and that you can say something meaningful within? But, um, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot we 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 have a lot of concerts these days of um, music for games, um, and it's how a lot of people are encountering music and and indeed music in particular that relates quite strongly to the art music tradition. Uh, but I think there is there is a great deal more scope for for um, games for music, turning it the other way around.
0: So, what sort of stories? Is it possible to tell in this modular fashion? I mean, because you're, you're making the argument that teleology can still be a part of it. In other words, there can still be an ultimate endpoint of the story, but multiple pathways that will take that will take you there. So, <clears throat> what can you do that would that would differ from a, a conventionally told narrative, let's say? And what are the things that you can't do? In that sort of a format, and by narrative, I mean that in the in the broadest sense. It might it might mean an actual literal narrative, or it might be mean uh, narrative in a more musical sense, in in terms of the overall trajectory of a musical composition.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I guess (laughs) what what can't you do? There, there is so much that what what worked well in this particular iteration was because what Francis thought would be interesting was to sort of explore somebody's inner inner psyche and and how when we're thinking back over events we will turn things around and around and around um it allowed for for circling type structures which which would have a have an endpoint um but allows for for repetition and and multiple ways through so that that worked um rather well there um i it's um the, the the other reason that it worked well is because it, it keeps the the possibilities down to something that's manageable. Because um, you know, if you talk to people who, who have been um, working in interactive fiction, that the um, the branching can very quickly become um, extremely problematically large. And I, you know, there's I mean, some recently some I forget their names, but some really interesting. Uh, film slash game hybrid sort of detective stories and then the the hours and hours and hours of footage that are required to do that sort of thing. And certainly I think one of the ways that you can ensure flexibility um, without having to just record hours and hours and hours and hours of music is to work um, uh, in a generative way so that you set up some rules for a texture, for example, and then this texture can be manipulated, can continue for however long it might need to, and various things can happen to it, but you're not, you're not composing note by note. Um, you're setting up rules for musical environments, and that was um, certainly the way that I, uh, I approached this. It was well, a combination of some things which were prefixed Elements of the vocal line, um, but all of the most of the instrumental stuff is based on uh, a set of small samples and then rules for how they can be configured to create different sorts of textures. And that was quite useful for me, just sort of thinking uh, from my own sort of compositional practice and um, requiring that level of of clarity of of what I want because. Sometimes it can be easy to, to sort of jump from the imagination, and the, the sort of audiation, sort of directly, as it were, to the page, because you kind of somehow you feel it. And um, the, I guess as you, as you get more experience, you know the sorts of things to do to achieve what you're looking for. But in, in this situation, I was needing to set up rules and set up flow charts to to hand over to my software designer so that they could be implemented into the system um, so there was a, a lot of of, of needing in, instead of of um yeah instead of creating a set of orchestral parts it was creating a set of rules for how textures can be generated and modulated and and moved around and and yeah that, that this for me was a sort of a new way of thinking about music and and, and a useful one
0: Presumably, though, you're still constrained by the limitations of recording because the music has to be recorded. And even if there are different layers to it and they can be combined differently and, and permutated and so on, the, there's, a, there's presumably a, a bank of recorded sounds that go into the, a project like that. What would happen if you were to bring artificial intelligence into the equation where the, there was no longer that constraint of, of having a fixed amount of recorded material that could be recombined? but a potentially unlimited amount of material is that technically feasible at the
1: present time would you say is that something that would interest you to be involved in yeah it's not something that i know is sufficiently enough about um to give a definitive yes this is definitely technically feasible but certainly it's um it sounds like it would be and it would be a fascinating um thing to engage in and um, uh, again it would be about as you know if you play with chat GPT and you explore the different kinds of responses that you get to the different sort of inputs and the more you do that the more refined perhaps your your instructions to chat GPT are so that you get closer to the result that you're looking for I think in the same way you you could be playing a, a musical AI as an instrument if you Set the constraints, um, then you could have a very high degree of control um, and flexibility. And you know, as with with all these things, that we're at the foothills, and and there's so much to to discover.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think I think we are indeed at the foothills. There's a there's a there's a a, a vast horizon opening up ahead of us. How does that affect you? uh when you're writing more traditional for more traditional formats let's say for for a concert situation I mean now that you've made this piece can you imagine returning to chamber music for example or orchestral music in the same way as before or is it going to be changed as a result of this experience
1: well I think we're always changed by any experience we have um it's certainly not lessened my desire to write chamber music and orchestral music because I I love those forms of music and, you know, I just love music in general. So it's more that, wow, there is, there is more that can be part of this experience rather than, oh, I want to shut everything off and just focus on this one thing. Um... It's, um, you know, as I described, the sorts of ways I was having to be required to define my compositional aims, in a sense, that's a sort of technical skill of articulation, um, which which I think I have found useful in, in subsequent things that I've written. There's a, an, an extra degree of clarity um, that I have access to from having gone through this experience and also um i mean one of the things i I didn't mention one of one of the just the, the lovely things about writing um music for this game situation is that you know often i would uh spend a long time stressing about should it be this note or should it be that note either of which would function just fine and how do i choose which one and and thinking about the ramifications of that, and and like how how much time spent just deciding between those two. Whereas in a game, oh, you can have them both. You know, just computer decides which one. You just write them both, and that um, that sort of liberation, I think, is sort of uh, allows uh, has has allowed me to be sort of as it were lighter, less uh, less precious, maybe. Um, with my material and, um, and other pieces. But also, you know, I have always, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Computers have always been part of my life and um, using computers is part of my practice. And um, if there is a particular texture which is going to work better um, as a, a, a generative type thing, I'm not going to sweat um, figuring out note by note by note. I'm gonna code a patch of some description to spit it out and tell me, um, because that uh, the, uh, those kind of labor-saving approaches, I think are are helpful, particularly if you can if you can sort of um, test them and say, oh, that one doesn't sound right, this one sounds right, okay, let let's do this. Um, so it's it's knowing knowing where you the types of control. That you need as a as a composer, and where you can let other things take that control, or take the the aspect that doesn't need to to be controlled. You know, if you're if you're wanting uh, to to cycle through a particular set of notes in a particular harmonic configuration, um, I don't want to have to. Really, be thinking carefully about: Do I have this note next? Do I have that note next? Do I have this note next? I would far rather just know the parameters and the, as it were, like the different densities, perhaps of of, of notes in different parts of the different parts of the register, and and then uh, write a quick program that would give me that information, and then tweak it. Um so, so I think it's, it's, it's a constant, constant back and forth. Um, and, you know, the more you have, then the, the richer the possibilities are.
0: That proposition sounds reasonable to me. I, I, I was immediately thinking when you're talking about the. You know, the, the, the lack of desire to actually sit there choosing every single note, if you've got some kind of uh, formalized process happening in a piece or, or some kind of algorithmic approach. Why would you want to sit there agonizing over every pitch when when you can have a, a program that, that can spit out many many different iterations of that, and then you can choose the best one and, and tweak it, as you say? You know, you have to think about someone like Ligeti writing his Requiem or other pieces with these enormously complex micro polyphonic textures <clears throat> with voice upon voice upon voice and all these different lines, thousands and thousands of notes that he had to write. He wouldn't you imagine that he would have preferred, you know, if he if he could have just parametrized that and uh, and then gone off and had had a cup of coffee somewhere, rather rather than having to sit there for hundreds of hours or God knows how long it took him to to do those pieces, not that that would have worked for the for the entire piece, but there are certainly textures, there are certainly passages where that would have saved him a lot of time.
1: Yeah, I I bet, and you know, we have a tendency to sort of um, perhaps overvalue certain aspects of 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 hard work um I certainly value hard work but there's you know we sometimes we like to martyr ourselves but yeah I mean yeah what would Ligeti do if he had an AI to play with um that would be something
0: yeah yeah absolutely well I think if, if there's something that is is a sufficiently generalizable task that that you could conceivably not have to do it then you should not do it you should find something else to do with your time (laughs) <laughs> of course that 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 changes as technology changes but there we go your music has the quality of being lovely beautiful uh, pretty and it's very enjoyable to listen to and i have to say that it's not it's not a terribly common quality i say this as somebody who listens to an enormous amount of contemporary compositions. There's lots of music that is sonically striking, or that is unusual, or that adheres to different, let's say, avant-garde traditions, to use a bit of an oxymoron. There's vanishingly little that gives the listener the impression of being in a a, a gorgeous sound world. And you seem to have achieved that. Is that something that you are instinctively drawn to as a listener. I know that you've, you've referred to Feldman, for example, or Schubert as composers that are close to you. And you could certainly argue that both of them, both of those composers wrote extremely beautiful music. Is that for you a, a thing to aim for, or does it emerge as the consequence of a particular language, a particular approach?
1: first of all it's extremely extremely kind of you to say um I'm very flattered um uh but also very glad because absolutely that is that is what I aim for um and I think in terms of the um the sort of it, the, it is it that sound or is it a byproduct of a particular sort of approach to writing music I think I th- I think the two go together the the approach for me there's the there's the sonic imagination and then finding the tools with which to create that um why these sorts of sounds i mean essentially because i like them um but i think to a large part because i i I still insist on thinking of myself also as a violinist and there is an aspect of when you're Playing an instrument, the the way the way it resonates for you, um, is is an important aspect of the experience. And if we're talking about Feldman, you know, he he says how if he were to try and write his music on somebody else's piano, it wouldn't be his music anymore. It was something about his his own piano that. Um, that had those resonances that, that 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 allowed him to make the the Feldman sounds and i think there is something about for me i think it is partly it's being in touch with instruments and and um and the 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 sound drives me i find it very difficult to write without some way of externalizing the music that i'm writing whether i do that by singing or by playing often it's the viola i play cuz it's got a very useful range um or or in the piano or using playback on notation software or often i will do a lot of multi-tracking if it's this particular complex um passage i'll multi-track myself playing it so that i can so that it's tangibly there and um yeah i think uh, i have a particular set of a, a particular type of sound, I guess, that I like, but I also hope that there's, um, it's all, it, there's there's that sort of there's a personal preference aspect, but also, um, I want to write music that um, is, for want of a better word, expressive, um, and and allows for those relationships that we were talking about earlier on, those those changes of context that that create expressive results and the sorts of um, sonic structures and technical means that I use to allow for those kind of things to happen um, will generate particular sorts of sonorities and also for me expressiveness is is also about uh, an available range um, uh, of, of possibilities and I don't want to shut don't want to shut possibilities off so so yes I, I i i do aim for for beauty perhaps in a in a in a quite conventionally thought of sense but um i also enjoy writing music that is ugly and and ferocious as as well for us to hear the beauty against and i'm very happy to sit in an uncomfortable sonic space for for a period of time to to allow for those um you know to to enjoy that experience but I guess it's it's the it's the um it's the experiential aspect. I think maybe that's part of that that that's where it comes from. Whether it's beautiful or whether it's not it's it's not music that's written to just be the the sounding representation of a particular theoretical backdrop theory that's in there when it is 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 there to achieve particular types of sensation and i'm interested in how sensations modulate over time and and how we take people through um the various energetic states of a piece of music to as we were saying earlier spend however many minutes of your day that you're listening to this piece better than they might have been spent otherwise.
0: Beautiful music clearly seems to have a Darwinian advantage. That's another way to look at it.
1: Well, then I'm, I'm glad I'm on, on that particular evolutional side of things. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well,
0: <clears throat> I mean, it, it's obvious listening to your work that there is a, high degree of craftsmanship you're extremely well trained and you have a a broad range of musical interests also i think that that that's very clear it's it's you can see sometimes when composers have rather narrow range of interests or where uh they're really exclusively focused on on something very specific but there's there's a broadness of range i would say um that being said what are the things that you can't do presently Either for technical reasons or expressive reasons, or what are what are the limits right now, or the things that you that are more aspirational, let's say, that you would like to achieve in a future piece?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. I I, I would like to work more. Um, well, I mean AI you mentioned. I have a colleague who who is doing a lot of um, improvisation and working with with AI in that. That is fascinating and that I've got a lot to learn in that area and I'd like to um, develop my knowledge and my skill and see what the possibilities are there. Also working um, actually in a non-instrumental way with music constructed in a DAW, um, a potentially a standalone or for something that I could work with in live performance as a violinist. Um, it's, it's sort of been a kind of background hobby um but hasn't had the opportunity for me to to do so, so uh, a great deal with it and um, I am very much a dilettante in that area and and I'd like to spend some some more time working on um, that that kind of thing um actually it's sort of almost a, a sort of music that is um there's almost only for live performance that probably wouldn't be a great experience recorded and then and then listen back. But that um, but that with a with a live performer and working with electronics that you could, you could create some fantastically interesting sounds. And, um, and particularly, I'm sort of interested in what what could be done with with looping based structures and and things, but. In, but um in in sort of maybe unpredictable and irregular ways and um yeah using the possibilities of these kind of softwares and um and live performance um to do something that was sort of quite personally mine and and would allow me to um would allow me to perform as well i think that's that's where nice sort of kind of long term background things that i would like to be working on but i know that i just don't know enough about the about the techniques, about um, using the software um, to, to be able to do so just yet.
0: Yeah, I think it's important for creative people to have their ad astrum moment, the reaching for the stars, the thing that is just out of reach, but that is aspirational. I think of that in connection with artists like Edgar Varez, who famously lacked the means in his lifetime to do the things that he wanted to do. He had a, a visionary sense of what, where, where he thought music would be going or, or where he wanted it to go and he was constrained by first of all his lack of access to recording equipment recording technologies and also just uh well technologies that didn't yet exist but eventually would and there's something prophetic about that reaching struggling towards the future uh, uh and as yet uh inchoate and uh potential future let's say and I think that was enormously stimulating for him as an artist, even though it also meant that there were things that he simply could not do. And I would contrast that with figures such as Josef Matthias Hauer, who wrote endless variations on basically the same idea, and or Hindemith, you know, who got his technique sewn up in about the mid-1930s and then spent the last 35 years of his life just more or less continuing <laughs> along that road. Um, in other words, artists who reach a point of satisfaction with their technique and they're happy to just keep practicing it over and over and over again. But there's no longer this striving for something that's out of reach. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. I wonder what the equivalent would be today of a, of a Varese, of somebody who lacks the technological means, because we live in an era where the, the possibilities are so insane that, you know, how many among us can truly say that we've done more than scratch the surface of what's possible to do today. So wh- who would be the artist who would come out and say, I can't do yet what I want to do, that the technology isn't advanced enough?
1: Well, potentially those artists who are currently working in that cutting edge of technology, who are there and can and can see the, um, what could happen if 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 the technology were there? But but also, you know, what what an exciting time to be alive, where where those possibilities are all there, and we and we don't need to say, oh, if only, um, when actually, so often the if only is just a couple of sentences into a search engine away, and can open up all these all these new possibilities, um. So so those people are here and and they're making music and that's why it's such an exciting time to be a composer just now because there is such variety. Um and then maybe that's that's the challenge. it's certainly one of the challenges I feel is like to to uh, to focus on one particular on, on on a way of doing things when there is so much of interest and so much to explore. Um it's um it it, it can it can, it can lead to a sort of, a sort of, oh, um, almost a a directionlessness. Um, so maybe it's important to just get very excited about a particular area for a period of time and then to make sure that, um, you're listening all over again and seeing where the next area might be to go to.
0: I love your optimism. It's contagious and that seems like a good place to stop. So thank you so much, Martin, for this. Uh, fascinating conversation I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, we'll put some links in the podcast description for those who would like to try out Black Fell, and also links to your new disc so there's lots of ways to listen to Martin's music and I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to do so thank you so much thank you so much Samuel it was
1: great fun